That's what's really happening here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, joining me today is my co-host, Dr. Scott Melson. Hello, sir. What is up, man? How are you? I'm well. Good to see you. Likewise. Uh, you were you here? Yeah, you were here last week. No, not last week. Was I here last week? I think I was here last week. It was the week before I wasn't there. That's right. All the days just run together. Well, anyway, regardless, good to see you. Bailey's not here this week. That's what we should say. Bailey, Bailey, is, Bailey is out this week. Uh, one day, you know what? One day, maybe one day soon, we will all uh, be here and we can we can even record like in person. Like how cool would that be? That would be great. I think it would be more interactive and we would have like, we could play off each other's uh, body language in ways you can't do it on the computer. Pot, potting is potting over the potting virtually is certainly something that can be done, but it's it's not the same. It's not. And so I, that's a question for you as a physician. This is not, I'm not soliciting medical advice, but what's your perspective? I, I think about my daughter, Margo, right? Who is uh, 15 months old this weekend. Uh, no, today, actually, she's 15 months old today. Happy birthday, Margo. She ha- she doesn't listen to the pod. She doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell. I'll pass it along. But, you know, she spent her entire life in the uh, pandemic and is, has been a witness and participant in quite a few Zoom calls and video conference calls of various sorts. Uh, and so I I thought about the other day, I am someone who speaks with my hands a lot. I'm doing it right now for effect. And But on video calls, I don't think people do it as much, right? Like, and so, because everyone's typing while they're supposed to be having a conversation. And uh, and so I, I wonder if it is different for her when she sees people speaking in person you know, like how this will like factor in. I'm sure before I, I'm just going to answer my question and I'll let you answer, but I, I'm sure over the lifespan, it'll all be fine, right? Like she's got a, a few months in pandemic or a year, but then her big learning in school, hopefully by then we're out of the woods and people are free to gesture about. Yeah. I mean, I think both of those things are right. I think it will definitely have an effect. I think it's also an effect that can be overcome. I mean, you and I have talked about before that I think that we're going to see you know, like we've got this cohort of kids now that are like, you know, you know, kids that were born at the beginning of the pandemic, kids that are in kind of the one, two, three year old range when at the beginning of the pandemic and honestly even a little bit older that have now spent this last year where their exposure to their exposure to nonverbal communication and particularly like facial cues um, from people outside their immediate household has been really limited. And I think that that's going to absolutely have an effect on it's absolutely going to have an effect on their communication skills, um, certainly when we immediately come out of the pandemic. Now, how permanent that will be, I don't know. But I do think I do think that there's there's certainly reason to believe that like we'll see a, a an increased need for like speech therapists in school, right? Um, and of course mental health providers as well. I mean, I can tell you right now, like just from my own practice, my wife is a therapist, other people that I talk to, I mean the return to school, you know, we, you know, there's, there's been a debate about when and how for kids to go back to school for several months now. Um, and, and most places are back to school here in Oklahoma in some form or fashion. And that has been on the one hand, I think, you know, I think there's agreement that the best place for kids to be for the most part is in school. However, it has had significant consequences on the mental health for a lot of these kids. I mean, like, um, kids that were already struggling with things like, you know, depression or anxiety, um, have had, you know, worsening kids that haven't struggled with those things before are having, are having issues. I mean, it's been, um, we are in for like a really, uh, I, I think we're in for a couple of years of like, and, and maybe longer of processing what this has been like for all of us, but especially for our, especially for our kids. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And I, I think you're right. Like things that might be overcome normally will just like take a little bit longer, right? Like this this happens, you know, it's a trauma, lots of things like it kind of pauses the developmental process, right? And so things are delayed, but it doesn't mean that they don't happen or, you know, whatever over the long haul. Anywho, none of that has anything to do with Oklahoma politics, but it's a fun conversation for a couple of, you know, healthcare junkies as well. Um, 
Scott, this week in the state legislature was uh, remarkably quiet compared to the last few weeks. Yeah, I um, I was just crazy busy this week and um, was not able to kind of keep to keep up with as much as I as I usually try to. Um, but I was kind of scrolling through and and reading and like you know Sean uh, 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 Ashley. Ashley does his uh, e e capital uh, early bird updates every morning at like four o'clock in the morning. And, you know, usually, usually on Thursdays, it's going to be like 15 tweets long and there's like all this stuff happening. And I think today it was four tweets. It was like, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're, mm-hmm. they're about done. Uh, going to go home. Uh, don't have a budget yet. And uh, check, check back Monday. Yeah, see Monday. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't twice, twice this week. He had really short threads. Uh, yeah. Although I think one was due to connectivity issues. Yeah. So it, it has been a, we'll say a relatively quiet week. Which, in some ways, I think just means like not a full-on assault of democracy, and maybe not as contentious. I mean, although I, I uh, saw Representative Andy Fugate today um, at the Oklahoma History Center, and somebody asked uh, um, DHS Secretary Justin Brown, asked him how things are going with the with the session, and I heard Representative Fugate say, "You know, we've had just really weird battles with the other chamber this year." He's like, "This has been unlike most years." And I thought that was, I don't know, it was somewhat unexpected to, to me. I, I know that they've had some debates and some challenges between the House and the Senate, but to hear it from someone on the inside um, about that strife, maybe I've missed it this year. It, you know, in years past, we've seen, well, we've seen the Speaker and the Pro Tem um, like holding uh, a not combative, but like back-to-back press conferences, right? Like when Senator Schultz was the the pro tem in the Senate a few years ago, you would see Speaker McCall do a, a press conference, and then the pro tem would have a press conference, and the governor would have a press conference, and they all just were like trying to pass the buck to one another. We haven't seen it quite the same, but they've done it through the legislative process this year. Well, and I mean, they've had some, they've not had press conferences, but they've definitely had some press releases, right? I mean, you know, one of the things we talked about at the beginning of session was that Speaker McCall um, was wanting to uh, do, I just, I mean, I can't help but laugh when I say tax relief, because he, he at the beginning of session, he was talking about, yeah, we really think this is a, a great time for tax relief, as though Oklahomans are like overtaxed by some measure, which is objectively even if you want them to be lower, there's no objective measure by which Oklahomans are overtaxed, right? Um, but then uh, Senator Treat was like, yeah, no, we don't really think this is the time for that. And then, in fact, like like straight up declined to pass it. Um, and they they uh, um, uh, so that was a that was a big issue. There was um, the issue with uh, with uh, uh, health care reform. Um, so uh, the House passed uh, a bill from Senator uh, or from Representative McIntyre that would essentially impl- implement Sooner Care 2.0, which was uh, what the governor had initially had initially proposed uh, uh, for a a possible way to do Medicaid expansion and then kind of changed his mind. Um, um, And and then the Senate has, I think thus far declined to even take that up. Right. Have they even, I think they've even voted on it at this point. Um, um, You know, that's never, it's never dead, but that doesn't bode well for the bill's prospects over there. Um, You know, last session, the last couple of years, I feel like, you know, legislative season has been marked by um, the legislature fighting with the governor. Um, But I do think that this year it's more accurate to say um, that the legislature is fighting with each other. Um, You know, the the chambers are fighting with each other. Senator McCall had a bill that basically said, you know, the state of Oklahoma via the attorney general is allowed to declare any federal law that they want unconstitutional. And then Senator Treat, uh, modified that language and said, "That's actually, that's um, actually not. It's not how it works. Uh, you can't. You can't just just because you pass a law saying you can do that doesn't mean you can do that." Um, and Speaker McCall was uh, pretty irritated about that. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's so, there's oh, there's been some weird back and forth for sure. Well, and I and I think they've also put tried to put each other on the spot, right? So so you know, Senator Treat would you know, amended one bill. So then Speaker McCall, um, you know, did a shucked another bill and sent it back to the Senate with language. And so 
like forcing them to vote on things that they didn't want to vote on once, much less twice. Uh, and it, it strikes me, I feel like some of this is like inside baseball trying to embarrass the other team in front of the three teams. people who are paying attention. Right, right. Like <laughs> you and I talk about this frequently that most Oklahomans, right, are not paying attention to what's happening with well with like congressional leadership much less the state house leadership right like they don't give two shits if someone's bill didn't get heard and that made them pissy and so they didn't hear another bill right those kinds of things happen all the time and if it sounds like you know sophomoric petty things well that's politics right but it also means and, and this is you know i think probably a relevant conversation that 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 kind of behavior those antics often result in good bills just fall into the wayside right things that would actually change help enhance life for oklahomans get lost in the shuffle and it brings bad bills to light right so senate bill 2 which what you know is the the anti-trans bill that we spent uh, uh quite a bit of time here talking on the show about um, there was a thought that that might, there was a debate in the House caucus about whether or not that bill was even going to be heard, right? And, and my understanding is that leadership had decided that they weren't going to hear the bill for all of the reasons that the bill is terrible, right? But then that on that Monday is when uh, Senator Treat changed the language of Senator McCall's um, bill about declaring uh, laws unconstitutional. And so then House leadership put Senate bill on Senate bill two on the floor, knowing it would pass to send it back to the Senate and forcing them to deal with it. Right. Like, like that was, and, and, and this is like, I mean, and that's a particularly egregious case because not only is it a bad bill, but it's like endangering trans teens, which are like already one of the most vulnerable populations from uh, a, a, uh, health and mental health standpoint um, and almost using them as like a political pawn because you're pissy about um, a law that's going to be declared unconstitutional anyway. Right. Like, right. Um, so like not only do you see, you see good bills get dropped, but you see bad and like dangerous bills get brought back as a, a messaging tool. That's right. Yeah. As a, as a, a political stick to beat your, uh, colleagues with i was gonna say opponents but it's also is the joke that um uh, is it from the west wing where someone says it's, it's it's quoted in the west wing but i think it didn't come before that where the the new congressman new congressman shows up and is talking to an elder statesman from his party and says uh and and says well i just you know one of the one of the one of the other side asked me to go to asked me to go to lunch but i'm, I'm not going to go because i don't want to be seen cavorting with the, the enemy and he says son son the other the other side's not the enemy. They're the opposition. The enemy is the Senate. Uh, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, well, anyway, in just a matter of weeks, no more than three weeks from today, the legislature will be done. But, Scott, you mentioned unconstitutional bills and, well, bills like Senate Bill 2 that will likely be ruled unconstitutional if they are challenged in court. And earlier this week, Carmen Foreman at the Oklahoma had a really uh, interesting story, I think, uh, about the, the uh, noted history the legislature has here in Oklahoma of passing unconstitutional laws. And they even had a really great political cartoon uh, explanation in the article that looks like, it looks a bit like uh, the Schoolhouse Rock, I'm just a bill kind of graphics. And it shows <laughs> how it happens when a bill gets challenged uh, and is ruled unconstitutional and overturned. And so, as you might guess, listeners, the gist of the story, which I will link to in the show notes, but basically it says the number of, un of bills that are unconstitutional and get challenged and ruled as such has been increasing in recent years. And <laughs> then there's this um, really funny quote where it says, Republican leaders of the Oklahoma House and Senate said their chambers never knowingly advance unconstitutional bills because, of course, constitutionality is subjective. And the courts reviewing the legality of laws is part of the government's process of checks and balances, said House Speaker Charles McCall. Quote, the Oklahoma House constantly discusses constitutionality in the legislative process and never knowingly advances anything unconstitutional. Constitutionality is subjective. 
and is why co-equal legislative, executive, and judicial branches have existed for checks and balances in Oklahoma and in democracies everywhere since ancient Greece. Um, two things. They knowingly... <laughs> They knowingly advance unconstitutional legislation all the time in the case of most of the abortion bills that they pass, knowing that they're unconstitutional, and they pass them so that they'll be challenged in a hope of overturning Roe v. Wade. So they pass unconstitutional bills knowingly all the time. Now, they would say, they would say, no, 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 those bills aren't unconstitutional. It's not our bill that's wrong. It's Roe, the decision uh, in Roe that is wrong. That, you know... I'm not a constitutional scholar. I'm not a scholar of Roe versus Wade. I've heard compelling legal arguments on both sides. Um, however, I guess I would I would then like refer them back, like not they, I'd, I'd tell them to go back to that part of the Constitution, um, which is not the amendments part, which is where they like to spend a lot of their time, but back to that part where it actually defines the roles. Um, as it turns out, state legislators and state legislatures don't get to decide what's constitutional and isn't constitutional. It is subjective, but the people who get to rule that subjectivity are called the Supreme Court of the United States. And if they say something is constitutional or unconstitutional, that is in fact what goes, regardless of whether you agree with the decision or not. So, right. so, so, like, I mean, that's one of the things that just blows my mind is like, they'll say, well, the Supreme Court just passed this unconstitutional opinion. No, no, because the Supreme Court did it, it is by definition constitutional, right? Right. Like they, they, they get to make that decision. So that's point, point one. Point two, have co-equal legislative, executive, and judicial branches existed for checks and balances for, for like millennia since ancient Greece? I, I mean, like, was there, was there a co-equal executive in ancient Greece? Like in, in Rome, like you had the Senate and then you also had the, like the, what do you call it? The tribunes and the, like the kind of bosses in yeah, Rome. The emperor. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I'm, but I'm not even talking about the empire. I'm talking about the republic prior to the empire. Right. Uh, yes. Um. Um. But. Uh, yeah. It's. Uh. I. I just. I read that sentence and I was like, I feel like most. That sounds like a very, like learned sentence, but I think most of it's inaccurate. What. <laughs> Like, I'm pretty sure most of it's wrong. You know, Charles, you make a good point, except I think you're wrong. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I'm i not sure. I I enjoy history as much as the next guy, I think. and uh, But I, don't, I haven't studied all democracy since then. And, and we – how do I phrase this? The ideal of co-equal branches, I think, is, is a, a ideal to which we – aspire with this constant like uh also co-equal attack on one another right or at least perceived attack where the legislature and the executive and uh, in some cases the, the judiciary are trying to put off one or both of the other branches to try to like trip them up and maybe that's maybe that's how we none of them ever get ahead is that they're all it's like the the three stooges where they're just poking each other in the eyes and pulling their nose and stuff so that no one can get ahead. So like many things, a quick Google search yielded a plethora of information. And it turns out that the separation of powers as political doctrine actually has its origins um, in the writing of Charles de Sangat, Charles de Socondat. I don't know if you say that right. Uh, Baron de Montesquieu in the spirit of laws. Um, so rather than ancient Greece, um, it's like the enlightenment. Yeah, so like 1750s. Um, yeah. So, so like know. 15 years before America was formed. So yeah. this was a brand new. This was a relatively new idea back then. Yeah, I mean, no, you know, I uh, I don't know if he was uh, like a lot of people in the Enlightenment. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if he was looking back to the ancients um, for his inspiration. Um, but uh, it was apparently Montesquieu, not the first. Grecian legislature that came up with the idea for a separation of powers. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, great, great quote. Uh, apparently, entirely incorrect on uh, yeah. the part of Speaker McCall. So well, I think this is a good segue. Yeah, Scott, we're doing all right for not having a plan for this episode. We're just going to roll from one topic to another. <laughs> just, and just, I think just winging it. Just winging we can, it. We can weave them all in together, right? 
there was also a story this week in the Oklahoma and also from Carmen Foreman about um, uh, a new law. Um, it was House Bill 2932, uh, and it um, allowed it to it, it pass the legislature last week, and then the governor didn't sign it, and he didn't veto it. And since we're in session, that means it's a pocket signature, right? So during session, the governor doesn't act on a bill that goes to his desk, then it becomes law without him actually approving it. <laughs> and, and this was that's probably a appropriate response for this. Um, so House Bill 2932, oh, excuse me, House Bill 2932 um, basically injects the legislature into um, CARES Act funding and any other um, federal stimulus related funding because they did not have a role. And um, as the Legislative Oversight and Fiscal Transparency Committee, LOFT, um, they put out a report earlier this year that basically showed a bunch of examples of undocumented, questionable spending from the executive branch. So just to go back to our conversation about the legislature fighting against uh, or coming at odds with the executive branch, I think this is a, a huge example where the, the governor, as the chief executive, had authority to spend this emergency money, and he did. And as is always the case, the legislature was like, hang on, well, you know, we are the ones that have the power of the purse here, and we should be the ones to approve all this spending. Never mind the fact that they were not in session when this money came to be, and if this happens henceforth, right? So now that they do have the power to spend this money uh, or other stimulus money comes into the state, if they're not in session, so if it happens during the eight months of any year when they're not in session, they would have to come back in session, get up to speed and act. And in some cases, that could be weeks of time, right? It'd be on their schedule, and that might could result in a situation where the state is not as nimble, as responsive as they need to be, right? Yeah, so uh, so I guess I would say, you know, I mean, as we we have a well-documented history here on the show of, of, of remarking on the fact that anytime there is money, if there is money that can be spent on things in Oklahoma, the legislature thinks that they are the only ones that should have any say in how those funds are spent because as they love to remind people, they have the power of the purse. My understanding is that the power of the purse um, is uh, extends only to Oklahoma state funds. It does not extend to federal funds. Um, at the federal level, Congress has the power of the purse and Congress passed the CARES Act and Congress delegated um, that $1.26 billion or whatever it was uh, in CARES Act funding to come to Oklahoma. And they wrote the legislation in a way that gave the governor the power to spend it. So um, this was a case of the legislature um, you know, similar to the debate that we had about uh, about uh, TSIP funds, um, this is a, a, a case of the legislature seeing a big pot of money and thinking that they are the only ones who should be allowed to spend it, um, in large part because uh, they, they think that that will make their job easier um, um, by maybe decreasing what they have to what they have to ap appropriate in the regular session. At least that's my suspicion. None of them talked to me about it. Um, I have like. I have mixed feelings about this. Um, I feel like I feel like the problem that they identified was the right problem. I think this is the wrong solution. Um, you know, um, yeah. Are there is there is there are there questions about how how some of the CARES Act money was spent? Yes. Are there questions about some of the practices that were used to like account for that money and 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 kind of where it went and why? Absolutely. Is is the answer to that to give that pantheon of transparency the Oklahoma State Legislature um, the power over how those monies are spent in the future? In my opinion, no. In my opinion, it's the right legislation, kind of codifying how the governor has to account for and maybe uh, use federal funds like this when they're allocated in the future, right? Because your point is well taken that like. I mean, what was the right thing for them to do? To like, okay, we're going to call a special session. It's going to start in two weeks. And then they're going to come into session. They're going to gavel in. And then they're going to spend what? Like, you know, 
uh, another two weeks like bitching at each other about whether or not they can cut taxes based on this influx of 1.26 billion dollars right like i mean well and also just not sorry to cut you off but like the legislative process of decision making is by nature a longer process right like the as it should right the fastest they can go from introduction to final passage in the opposite chamber is seven days four I mean, days something like that you gotta have a first second third reading and then you gotta go to the other and you got a first second third reading yeah i mean yeah there's like i mean maybe they can all happen the same day yeah yeah and so and so yeah this is you know like i said i think i think that the you know i think that the problem is is real but saying that the fix is for the legislature to do it instead um you know, and I mean, and that's like, that seems to be the legislature's response to most problems is no, 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 no. Uh, we should have that power. No, 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 no. Right. We, should, we should do that. Uh, no, no, no. That should, that should be up to us. Uh, oh, I think it's important that we point out to listeners that the governor appointed a bipartisan committee, oversight committee of state legislators um, from both chambers and both parties for the purpose of providing input and overseeing how money was spent by the executive branch and the the report from loft or whoever like basically acknowledges like oh yeah yeah we know that you had a whole committee of uh, of us but it wasn't enough like what you really need is more of us and less of you right <laughs> well, just if you just just go ahead and let us do it that that we'd really prefer if we just did it ourselves i do think that the the fact that the governor just let this become law is uh evidence that he knew they were he didn't want to get into a fight right like or if he vetoed it they had the votes to override right and then that's that's just getting hit in the face for no reason right like he might as well just take it on take it and and roll with it um but obviously he's not going to sign it because he's not like i support this idea of restricting my power (laughs) senator treat had a quote where he said he said i think i think that the governor will be very open to legislative input in the future and i was like yeah i bet he will be uh, since he doesn't, he doesn't like, he doesn't have a, doesn't have a choice, but, you know, speaking, spe- speaking of, uh, care cares act mishaps. Um, remember back in the day when hydroxychloroquine was all a rage and everybody thought that, and, and by everybody, I mean, people on Facebook thought that hydroxychloroquine was going to like be the magic. Uh, I shouldn't say people on Facebook. There was a period at the beginning of the pandemic where, um, there were some, uh, people were using hydroxychloroquine to try um, and and treat the symptoms of of COVID, and it was found not to be effective. It was it's that's not true. It was not just on Facebook. Um, um, and at that time, uh, it's also on Parler. <laughs> at that time, no, there were there were. I mean, there are doctors and hospitals around the country, including here in Oklahoma, that were using hydroxychloroquine because this was when I mean, this was the beginning when like we had no like. By the end of the pandemic, we had much better strategies about how to manage these people in terms of just treating symptoms and their respiratory status, right? Like what to do with their ventilator settings, what to do with their, you know, what to do with uh, um, with like their airvo settings, like what to do with them in terms of fluid balance. Like we knew a lot more of that like at the end of the pandemic than we did at the beginning. Um, um, so at that point, this was in like April or May of last year. Um, we had purchased $2.6 million worth of hydroxychloroquine um, so that we would have a stockpile. Um, I think that that was shipped to a pharmacy in Prague, which I'm not 100% sure why it went out there. There's been, uh, I know there's there's an article I have bookmarked to read about why that why the drug went to Prague, but I haven't read it yet. Um, but uh, it seems, this is uh, in the Tulsa world, uh, Barbara Hobrock has a story today, um, that we're going to get a refund. So we're sending... We're sending the hydroxychloroquine back to those guys we bought it from, and we're gonna and we're gonna get our money back. So um, the awkward, the that's awkward part is the awkward part is it's like Amazon where you have to take it to Kohl's to do the return. I think so. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're, we're gonna get two million Kohl's bucks. I think is how this is gonna work. We get store credit, store credit for you. Yeah, and you know we'll get here's two point six million dollars worth of hydroxychloroquine. Uh, you have a store credit. You can use it to buy one vial of insulin. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just one one vial. That's exactly right. But it has to stay cold, and you have to use it by Friday. Uh, you know, since we're talking about coronavirus uh, and we're being irreverent, I, a little bit of good news is that as of this week, since our last 
I guess since yesterday, probably um, a million Oklahomans have completed the vaccine series, which is significant, right? Like we've given out um, more than, I mean, almost 3 million, I guess it's 2.7 million doses. Um, but of, of all of that, the people, a um, hundred or excuse me, a, a million, a little over a million people have, have completed the series, which is roughly one out of four Oklahomans, slightly more than that, close to one out of three Oklahomans, I think, has completed the series. So that's uh, cautiously good news. Of course, you know, cases are still happening. Uh, there was uh, 234 or something, roughly around 200 cases today. Yeah, uh, our our seven-day average is 175. We've got 190 people in the hospital. Um, so these numbers are very similar to what we were seeing uh, in roughly July of last year. Um, the models that I have seen um, show us having another another spike um, in uh, late May, late May into June, July. Not hopefully a spike on the on on the order of what we've seen in the past, but a definite increase of cases from where we are now, um, with then a a pretty steep tapering off to levels even below where we are now by by August, September, and into the fall. So I think that's um, and that seems to be pretty consistent across uh across several different models so i yeah. think we should expect to see cases start coming up probably here in, in the next oh uh you know six to eight weeks which makes sense since all the restrictions masks man you know most uh citywide mask mandates were lifted this week in oklahoma city and, and, Tulsa. and still water not still water still water's got their mask mandate in place until i believe may 25th so for the first and last time in my life go pokes <laughs> I, it's uh it, Stillwater, a known bastion of, of radical liberals up there right um all, but maybe it's appropriate because it is home to the oklahoma pandemic center of excellence or whatever it's called i uh, <laughs> uh but seriously I mean, a million people completed the series plus the the people who have some immunity from having the disease like you and i think have exchanged um articles this week there was one for the new york times on monday i think one from vox on tuesday there were kind of two sides to that coin right the new york times article was like herd immunity is a myth we're never going to get there everything is terrible good luck with your mask for the rest of your life and then tuesday vox uh, was like you know what like uh, it's closer than you think like we may get there and if you count everyone who's got vaccinated and had the disease like we may actually reach some kind of reasonable new normal so this you know this that yeah and i um i mean i don't know what's gonna happen we'll see um i am really encouraged by the situation in israel um the situation there is not 100 percent analogous to what we see in the u.s for a variety of reasons but i mean they have had um they have had just staggering levels of success um, with their with their vaccine program. Um, they've had really good public health measures in place, and they now have, I think, I mean, the lowest level of coronavirus of just about anywhere in the world. Um, they've done a really incredible job after having a really significant outbreak of their own. So um, that gives me a lot of hope that as long as we can get enough people um, to get the vaccine, um, that that will we will we will be able to get to you know kind of where we need to go i don't think that i don't think that you know so-called herd immunity is is out of reach um moderna i think this week has released preliminary data on a booster for one of the variants i can't remember which one but it appears to show similar efficacy and safety to the original vaccine for for uh, wild type virus so that shows that even for these variants we have the ability to uh, we have the ability to get to get booster shots for those that work really well, and that should provide a further layer of protection. Um, so this this is this is not an insurmountable challenge. We just need everyone to do their part, which means, you know, trying you know continuing to be careful um, um, in all the places that that are appropriate. But also, um, if you haven't got your vaccine, to get your vaccine, uh, Pfizer uh, has applied for full FDA approval, not just an emergency youth authorization, but full FDA approval of their vaccine. Uh, they did that either today or yesterday. Um, we'll very shortly be seeing, I think, emergency youth authorizations for the vaccine uh, in children, uh, even younger than what we're seeing now. So, like, we're like we're we're so close, like we're there, and we can have, I think, a um, a life 
that we had prior to COVID. Um, but it's going to take a little bit more time. But the more that we all do our part, the faster that we'll get there. Yeah. So maybe it makes sense then with that in mind to, to dream a little and to think about the future. And since this is a political podcast most of the time, um, <laughs> but we've both worked in public health, uh, let's continue to integrate these two and talk about what the future of politics in Oklahoma looks like and what the legacy of COVID is. Ooh, can we use the word legacy? Are we that far along uh, in it yet? That sound is my sphincter tightening. This episode will henceforth be called The Legacy of COVID-19. Um, and so let's fast forward to a couple of key dates. One, this fall is when candidate filing is for next year. No, excuse me. This fall is when people have to be living wherever they're going to be living <laughs> at the time that they file. And then um, filing, I think, is in uh, March-ish, April-ish. Um, and next year, as a reminder, listeners, all of the statewide offices are up for election. Governor, lieutenant governor, school superintendent, uh, inspector, auditor, the attorney general, the labor commissioner, the insurance commissioner. Um, some corporation commissioners, all of these things, in addition to the entire state house and uh, roughly half of the Senate, right? So this is, um, and the U.S. House, right? They'll all have new districts and it's an exciting time in politics. So picture Oklahoma in uh, a year from now, right? Everyone's filed, we're moving towards the primaries. Um, do you see COVID playing a significant role in campaigns next year? And let's answer those two ways, just for fun. Do you see COVID playing a role in the primaries? And did you see it playing a role in the general? Go. Yeah, for sure. Because I think, you know, and I don't think this is going to be unique to Oklahoma. Obviously, we're focused here. But like, yeah, I think this is going to be a role. I think politicians, I think politicians at every level um, are going to be touting their response to the pandemic, whether their response was um, strong and evidence-based on public health um, or whether their response um, was the opposite of that, <laughs> kind of right? That they, that they, you know, they, they see their non-response as a response, right? Um, I think politicians are going to be touting that based on what they feel uh, the folks in their district want to see, right? Um, Governor Stitt um, consistently resisted calls for a statewide mask mandate. Um, there were a lot of people that were very critical of him for that, particularly in our biggest metro areas. However, there were a lot of people in what I think has become his base, which is more rural Oklahoma, who were very skeptical about the need for a mask mandate, the constitutionality of the mask mandate. And I have absolutely no doubt that in either the primary or the general election um, for the gubernatorial race or for any other race in which he he may run. Um, I have no doubt that, that, that Governor Stitt is going to feature um, the fact that he didn't implement a mask mandate. He's going to feature the fact that he, um, quote, opened Oklahoma up for business earlier than any other state in the country against the advice of public health experts. And I think that he'll wear that as a badge of honor, right? Um, he's going to show, uh, he's going to point to our uh, the current state of our virus. He's going to point to the current state of our economy and our unemployment. And he's going to say, see, see, um, everything is good now. Um, and it's, and that's fine. And that shows that why what I did was the right call casually ignoring the months of December, November, and January, we had 2000 people in the hospital and not enough, uh, Airvo machines to go around. Right. Um, he's, he's not going to talk about those three months. He's going to talk about how things are now and how they were in June when he said, you know, everybody can kind of, kind of do their own thing. He also, I think is going to ignore the fact that, um, the two largest Metro areas had mass mandates in place for most of this time, right? Um, not all of it. Um, I think we should have, we should have and could have done it earlier, but, um, Oklahoma city and Tulsa eventually did get mask mandates in place. Right. Um, I think as a counter example to that, I think you'll see mayor Holt, um, in his reelection campaign, um, emphasize his support of mask mandates and his support of listening to public health, um, uh, experts for, um, for guidance. So, yeah, I think, I think, I think that you will see COVID on the ballot, um, in any number of ways. I think COVID was on the ballot this past November. I think what'll be interesting to see is how short of a memory do we have, right? Um, you know, uh, right now there's a big debate. Um, I won't get too much into this, but there's a big debate among 
um, congressional leadership uh, for the Republican Party in, in the U.S. House of Representatives having to do um, with our representative Liz Cheney from Wyoming versus Elise Stefanik, who is from uh, uh, New York and, and might replace her. Um, and, and this has to do with the November election and the riot on January 6th and, and their varying responses to that. And I mean, this was, this was four, five months ago. Right. Right. And, and people are acting like in, in that conversation that the January 6th riot, like never happened. Like, and we should just move on. We shouldn't even, we shouldn't even talk about it anymore. Um, and, and I'm not trying to like wade into that debate, but like, are we like, are we going to, when we talk about COVID in the next election cycle, are we going to remember how bad it got and how much worse it even could have been? Right. So I, I suspect that, um, voters and candidates, and voters will weight COVID proportional to how much they cared about it at the time, right? So um, largely Republicans who were more dismissive of COVID in general and of precautions like masks, uh, those candidates are gonna talk about it less because it wasn't as big of a deal to them, right? And their voters are gonna care about it less. Uh, and so, I think this is probably an illustration of some of that self-sorting and how um, candidates speak to their base and ignore the other side. Um, and 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 when it comes down to persuadable voters, right? So those um, those undecideds that are in the middle, I think there's a calculus that candidates are going to have to pay very close attention to um, because I think Democrats are going to try to make a bigger deal about COVID and COVID response. And Republicans are going to downplay it and maybe ignore it and, and talk about other things like economic factors. And when you look at the the voting population, the public for a for a jurisdiction or the state, you've got to know what your voters care about. And if most of your voters don't care about COVID, they didn't care about it now, and they're not going to care about it in a year from now, um, then you're wasting your breath, and you're you are not going to resonate with them, right? Yeah, so I'm gonna say I was gonna say pushback, but that's not even the right that's not even the right word. Like, you know, you're talking about persuadable voters and you have to kind of like watch yourselves and maybe the audience is different from a primary versus a general. I mean, is it though? Like, is it that much different of a universe, right? I mean, because you you know you know the map situation better than just about anybody else, I I would submit. They patched the maps this week. How many competitive districts do we have? Like in, in this next round. Right. No, right? I, and, and so I don't- and so I think I think to the I think to the extent they talk about COVID, I guess the way I would say it is they're going to be speaking to their primary voters because those are the only ones they're going to matter. Right. Yeah. For for the primary, especially like I would I would say I will be surprised if we hear much about COVID in the Republican primary race. Right. With the exception of more conservative candidates are going to try to ding less conservative candidates, right? Um, if they were supportive of mask mandates, right? They will try to shame them into being like, this guy wore a mask for 98 days, right? Like yeah. those kinds of things. I think that's a, I think that's a, I think that's a hundred percent going to happen, but I, I think it will be wide. I could be wrong. I think it will be widespread. Yeah. Well, I don't. So I guess another way to say it is I don't think any Republican candidate certainly not for the state legislature and not for statewide office are is are really going to tout their COVID response as a reason to reelect them right governor stitt will talk about it but he's not gonna talk about a healthcare response necessarily he's gonna talk about an economic response yeah so i guess i would say i i would say i think they're all going to tout their COVID response but i'm including in their response the things that they didn't do Right. Oh, right. Right. Like, so that's like, that's what I think. I think Governor Stitt is going to talk extensively about his COVID response and the fact that his response was to not do all of the things that <laughs> doctors and scientists, like, he's going to tout the fact that doctors and scientists and epidemiologists said, oh, you should do X, Y, and Z. And his response was to say, no, thank you. Um, right. Right. So, and, and you referenced um, Mayor David Holt a minute ago. Uh, listeners, if you don't already know, Mayor Holt is running for re-election for mayor 
which means he's not running for governor, um, which makes a ton of sense. One, I think he genuinely loves being mayor. He's wanted to be mayor for a very long time. And two, he has zero chance of getting out of the primary for governor, right? Like th this is the situation is that anyone, if you're, if you're a Republican mayor of uh, a city in a red state, if you're running for statewide office, um, you might get the vote of Republicans in your city if they supported you, but you're not all of them, right? You're going to have some that don't like you and you're certainly not going to get the vote from people in rural areas. And so I think this cycle, we will see a continuance of, of extremism, maybe from both sides, right? Like a, a drifting towards the fringe on both sides uh, as I think candidates and maybe voters feel like there's less reason to compromise. I think that's fair. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we're, we're kind of nearing the end of our time here today, I think. Um, uh, one thing I did want to point out, this came out yesterday. Uh, I thought this could be an episode title, but we're only going to spend like a couple minutes on it, so maybe not. Um, we've got twenty, we've got 26 pages of badness today. Uh, it could be an episode title or the name of your favorite high school garage band. Uh, maybe that's, that was, or I could say my, my first term paper in college was 26 pages of badness. Um the uh, state multi-county grand jury uh, um, has issued an interim report in their investigation of uh, epic charter schools. Um, they are not done with their investigation, but they issued this uh, they issued this report um, because they said due to the lack of transparency and accounting for the funds, an intentional avoidance of disclosure of information by a private entity and a lack of cooperation, the investigation is unable to be completed at this time. So basically they're saying uh, because we think they're lying to us and they won't cooperate with the investigation, we, we don't have, uh, we don't have findings yet. Um, but here is what we have noted. You can get, uh, uh, you can get the, the, the report. It's publicly available. A couple of things that I would note. And also most of the major new outlets, ha major, major news outlets have articles on this today. Um, as usual, uh, I am a big fan of non-doc and they have a, they have a great piece on it. Um, they go through kind of all the entities involved and like what they're, what they're looking at and, and a little bit of the history of Epic Charter Schools. I, I really think it's worth a read. Um, they say that there's really uh, several overriding concerns that have, um, that have emerged during this. Um, and they summarize them as not, these are not my words, a lack of oversight, a lack of transparency in operations and a, a lack of accountability by the for-profit company, Epic Youth Services, which is the educational management system or educational management organization that contracts with that Epic contracts with um, to to kind of run their stuff. One of their main concerns is that Epic uh, Youth Services, this management organization, are the ones who actually created Epic Public Schools, right? Epic Charter Schools, which is kind of backwards, right? They're essentially the uh, multi county grand jury is alleging that rather than they a group of concerned parents and teachers and community members seeing the need for a charter school and creating a charter school and then going and finding epic youth services and saying hey will you run our school the two guys that found up founded epic youth services said hey you know what we could make an education management company and then we could start a charter school and then we could get the contract to run the charter school and then we could get 10 percent of all the funds that come into that charter school, which 10% of the nearly $500 million that have gone to Epic since 2015 is a lot of damn money. Um, the, the quote that really like gets me here, um, the public has not been served by the incestuous relationship between the for-profit vendor Epic Youth Services and the governing board community strategies. The system has failed to provide accountability and allowed a company to take advantage and generate a substantial personal profit on the backs of Oklahoma students. Um, that is not the only time that they use the word incestuous uh, in the uh, in in the report. It's 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 delightful. <laughs> delightful. That's a uh, that's rough stuff, man. That's a. Uh, um... Anytime I think that you use the word incestuous in a grand jury paper, um, even if it's 26 pages of badness, I guess that makes it 26 pages of badness, but uh, that's some heavy, heavy handed uh, wordsmithing there. And I, I think you got to admit, like, it's a little uh, genius, maybe evil genius, right? But 
to come up with this plan and to say, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to we're going to create a business, and then we're going to create a school, and then we're going to funnel the money through the school into the into the business, and then we can keep some of the money. Or the other way around, we can funnel the money through the business into the school, and we can keep some of that money with literally no oversight or even insight into what happens with that. Um, that sounds like a sound business plan until a grand jury is looking into what you're doing, right? Um, I feel like I've been watching The Wire recently, um, and I feel like this was, uh, I'm in like season four right now, and I think a similar plan existed between some of the drug dealers um, and how they were going to uh, siphon money off the top of their operations. Yeah, I mean, it's I the, the report, I say it's 26 pages and it is, but it's, it's double spaced and it's not that annoying legal size paper that we discussed last week. So it, it, I, I read it in about, I read it in about 30 minutes. It's really, I would, uh, I would go to non-doc. They've got the art, they've got the report in the article. It's, it's worth a read because it really is just like, how is this allowed? Like, and it's like these two guys that have made $50 million off this in the last six years. Yeah. Well, maybe it's uh Maybe it's not going to be allowed for very much longer, right? Like that's, I and mean, they've already been like, "Hey, oh, sorry, we'll change how we're doing it," and that kind of lets you know that they got caught, right? It's like when you uh, when you walk in, your kids are doing something they're not supposed to do, and you're like, "What are you doing?" They're like, "Nothing," and then they immediately clean up whatever mess they're. Like they hide the markers and they try to wipe it off, and you're like, "Okay, well, you just clearly identified yourself as guilty here, man." Like the other day, I walked in on my daughter, and she was coloring on her chair in her room, like at her desk with a red marker and had it all over her hands. And I was like, I can't believe I literally caught her red handed. This is fantastic. She didn't get the reference, but I was very excited. (laughs) All right. On on that note, let's wrap it up for today. Scott, thanks for being here. Hey man. I, uh, I've, I've, I've missed a few recently, hopefully not another one for a while. So that's all right. Hey, you know, everyone's gonna take a day off every now and then. That sounds great. <laughs> Says the guy who's been up till 2 a.m. the last two nights working. Hey, listeners, uh, take a break this weekend. Get out, enjoy the nice weather. It's supposed to be almost 90 degrees this weekend. I'm not ready garbage. for that. But garbage. Garbage. Um, remember that decisions are made by those who show up. Don't forget, there's an election in just, uh, next week, I think. If that's you, be sure to check the election board website, elections.ok.gov make sure you get out and cast your vote. Other than that, folks, have a great weekend.